What do you think of when I say the following? Try and change someone's mind about politics via social media. What do you think of when I say the following? Go ahead and try and date somebody that has different core values than what you have. What do you have when I say the following? Commit yourself to regular use of social media. Or what do you think of when I say, stay up late even though you know you have work early the next day? What do you think of if I told you to pursue a degree even though you have no desire to work in that profession or to pursue pursue a degree just because it's the quote-unquote thing to do even though you have no particular goal set in your life? What do you think of if I told you to go stand in line at Costco for toilet paper? Uh, Perhaps many of you, at least through at least one of these things, have thought to yourself that it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. Many of the things I just read off to you, I took directly from a list entitled 20 Things in Life That Are Simply Not Worth It. We look around in life and we make those kinds of judgments. And many of us can answer that these things are not worth it because we ourselves have experienced these things. Perhaps you did get in an argument online over someone's political views and really genuinely thought to yourself that you could change their views. Perhaps some of you have tried dating an individual that just has a completely different belief system from you only to find out that it would just become more of a headache than it would actually be a blessing. Perhaps some of you have stayed up late knowing that you have work the next day, something that probably people in their 30s have only really come to realize now. Uh, Perhaps some of you did go stand in line at Costco this week to buy toilet paper. And then this summer, you're going to be handing that toilet paper out to other church members because you have so much of it. The reason they're not worth it is because, one, maybe we've experienced, and secondly, because they're not worth it because they rob us of something else that is. Maybe it's money. We could have directed our money into a better direction. Maybe it's our time. We could have used our time in a a better way. Maybe it's even relational capital. We ruined the friendship because of an argument online that we could have salvaged dealing with it another way. These things are not worth it because they cause us to sacrifice things that actually are more valuable. We're robbed of time, money, brain power, and emotional energy when we give ourselves over to things that are simply not worth it. And it is sad to say that today, People might even add Christianity to the list of things that are simply not worth it. Have you heard that before? That with the changing times and and, and the rise of the culture to go and lean against the things of Christianity, it is now no longer socially advantageous for you to categorize yourself as a Christian. It's not worth being a Christian because there are so many great things that we can give ourselves over to on Sundays that are better than church. It's not worth being a Christian because what if one day the government takes away tax exemptions? It's not worth it to give your money to the church because you won't get a tax exemption anymore in the future. Perhaps you're thinking and have heard it said that it's not worth it to be a Christian because you are devoting yourself to a book of antiquity that no longer has any relevance for the world that we live in today. Is Christianity worth it? It is. And how do we know that Christianity is worth it? Is it simply because of an external experience that all of us have had? Well, on one end, yes, we can call conversion that external experience that produces these doctrines and makes them or shows them to be a reality as the veil of sin is lifted from our eyes and we embrace our Savior, Jesus Christ. But we know as we turn to the pages of Scripture 
that a life that is lived for Christ, that a life that chooses to take up the cross and follow after Jesus is worth it because when we look at the road that Jesus walked, where did it land him? At the right hand of God the Father, sitting in glory. And so we too, as we take up our cross, know that that is our future. But I want to point out that the road to that destination is a difficult road and it is a narrow one. Jesus Christ said that himself. Over and over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus makes these appeals to say that taking up your cross is something that requires that you put yourself to death daily. It is a narrow path. And it is a difficult one. And undoubtedly, there will be times in your Christian life where you will constantly ask yourself the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it? The passage that we look at today is a passage that aims to encourage us as Christians that it is indeed worth following after Christ. It is indeed a life that is something that we ought to commit ourselves to and not just call ourselves Christians or not just be minimalist in the sense that let's just do enough to be called Christians, but it is worthy To pursue a life in which God will deem or evaluate as a faithful life of good service to the Lord. Look at what it says, as we looked at this two weeks ago. Last week, Pastor Micah walked us through the passage in Habakkuk. But two weeks ago, when we looked at this passage, look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. Paul tells Timothy that in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. I believe that this very idea is controlling all of the paragraph from verse 6 to 10, that Paul is encouraging Timothy that if you stick to these imperatives, that if you stick to these commands, if you pattern your life after the principles found in verses 6 through 10, you will indeed be deemed a good servant of Christ Jesus. And the fact that Paul tells Timothy that he ought to commit himself to these things in order to be a good servant, does indicate that it is possible for Christians to be bad stewards of the life that God has given us. You can be, in one sense, a bad steward of the faith that God has given you. This doesn't eradicate God of his sovereignty. It doesn't rob him of his sovereignty. And it doesn't put his sovereignty into our hands. But this is a tension that we must allow the scriptures to present to us. That there are some people when they stand before God that will be called good servants. And some, unfortunately, will not. The principles in this passage encourage us to pattern our ministry, our service to the Lord under the principles given in the outline, we saw the first four two weeks ago that faithful servants of Jesus Christ admonish the body. We saw that in verse 6. He said, in pointing out these things or in instructing these things, not just to anyone, but specifically localized to the brethren. You, as a Christian, bear the responsibility to your fellow brother to hold them accountable to the things revealed in God's word. We admonish one another. That's what makes us good servants. But the passage continues in the latter half of verse 6, and we are reminded, as we saw two weeks ago, that not only do we admonish the body, but we are constantly nourished. We are nourishing ourselves on the words. What are these words? Paul describes these words as words of faith. Referring to uh, the, the belief system that is Christianity as one body. One body of data. One body of knowledge that is intended to be passed down from generation to de- generation. Finding its source in God's word. And so we have received the faith that we ought to nourish ourselves in. But this faith. Notice is also something that we receive as sound doctrine. Part and parcel through the week in and week out proclamation of God's word and the Christian's daily Bible reading are we nourished on this word. 
good Christians, healthy servants, feast upon the gospel. Verse 7 also told us two weeks ago that faithful Christians reject error. Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women is a passage here that says when there is false teaching in the church, the church has a responsibility to reject We know this because it is so easy to see that in our culture today, that when there is a virus in our culture, sometimes it is necessary to quarantine an individual as the only way to resolve the issue. And in the same way in the church, whenever a virus finds itself inside of the church, the church has a responsibility to put that virus outside of the body. We cannot adopt false teaching and error. There is no room for those things in the church. And this is a responsibility for those who long to be found as faithful servants. We also saw two weeks ago that the faithful servant is a person who is disciplined for spiritual growth. Discipline for spiritual growth. We saw that in verses 7 through 8 where Paul uses the language of the gym. He uses the language of the spiritual gym and how we ought to commit ourselves to spiritual discipline in order to be found faithful by our Savior. Today, we see this fifth principle, this fifth principle that guides our Christian service, and that is that faithful servants labor for the gospel. We simply labor for the gospel. We'll see this unraveled through four supporting statements of what our label should look like. Uh, Let's look at the first in verse 9. Verse 9 reads as following, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. Here we see in verse 9 the value of gospel labor. The value of gospel labor. labor. This phrase is actually found a total of five times throughout the pastoral epistles. They are often labeled as the faithful sayings. The reason being is because the statement itself says it's a trustworthy statement, which can also be translated as a faithful word. And the faithful word shows itself up first and foremost in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. Turn with me there. And notice what Paul says. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Is that not a reliable statement? Is that not something that should be warmly received? That's what the language means when it says deserving of full acceptance. That it should be warmly received by all who come into contact with this statement that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The very first occurrence of this faithful saying revolves around the topic of salvation. Notice the second occurrence of the phrase. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Here, the trustworthy statement relates to those who aspire towards spiritual care. It is a trustworthy statement for men in the church to stand up and express shepherding, biblical, pastoral care for the people of God. We love to brag about our kids. Magna cum laude. He's going to be a doctor. He's a lawyer. He's going to be attorney anak. Attorney son. We love to brag about our children. And here the passage is saying, no, that the occupation of being a pastor is something that is worthwhile and ought to be esteemed. While it's not in the context of Salvation, the faithful saying, is in the context of taking care of God and his people. Uh, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at that first. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, gives us another occurrence where Paul uses this phrase. 
it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Here, the faithful saying revolves around what God has done for us and what God will do for us in the future. The focus is still upon redemption. The last occurrence of this phrase is found in Titus chapter 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Here the focus is upon redemption and the good works that flow out of an individual who has indeed been saved. And so every time Paul seems to use this phrase, it is a trustworthy statement, or the longer phrase, it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. It seems to indicate and point towards something that is extremely important in the life of the Christian, whether it is life in the body, like in 1 Timothy chapter 3, whether it is a reference to the salvation that is offered in Christ or the good works that ought to come out of our life, these are biblical, Christian, gospel 101 statements. So turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. It is a faithful word. It is something you can trust. You can put your money in the bank on this particular statement. Not only is it trustworthy, but it should be well received. That's why Paul says in the latter half of verse 9, it is deserving of full acceptance. You know, we joke about all of these greetings that we do. Like I felt, I was at a wedding yesterday and like it was an Asian wedding and nobody wants to touch each other so we're all bowing. So I'm just thinking, like, if somebody comes in from the outside and just sees all of the Asians, oh, oh, yes, hello, how are you? Right? We're all bowing and what that could look like, right? And, and, and everything inside of me, and, you know, actually, Filipinos, we don't really bow. We, we, like, love to hug each other. We embrace each other. We mess around with each other. We high-five each We high-five with interlocked fingers. Right? That's how we greet one another. And here, it's saying that this statement is something that is deserving of full acceptance. You should warmly embrace whatever this statement is talking about. Whatever this statement is. So what is the statement? What is this statement that we should put all our money in the bank on? What is this statement that we should actually warmly embrace? I would actually argue that the statement that Paul is referring to refers to the entire message found in verses 6 through 10, but more specifically, verse 8 and the latter half of verse 10. Verse 8 says, Bodily discipline is only a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It's a trustworthy statement to... Live your life for eternity's purposes. It is a trustworthy statement to prioritize your life in such a way that God is seen as the highest priority in your life. He is not a secondary option. I got nothing to do on Sunday, so I'll go to church. I got nothing to do on Wednesday, so I'll go to small group. I got nothing to do on this day, so I'll read my Bible. God is not your backup plan. It is a trustworthy statement for Christians to value spiritual discipline because it is something that we carry from this life into the next. You will not take your home beyond the grave. You will not take even your physical Bible, as much as you might love it, beyond the grave. You will not take your nice car, your nice bike, your nice shoes, your nice clothes beyond the grave. You will take your godliness beyond the grave. 
But it's not just that particular statement that I, I believe Paul is referring to because the, the whole paragraph rounds out in the latter half of verse 10 where we are reminded that Christians have fixed our entire hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men. This is part of that trustworthy statement. That there is no salvation under any other name offered to humanity outside of the name of Jesus Christ. Where will you go for comfort? Where will you go for eternal life? There is only one place to go. There is only one place to cast all of your hope, all of your faith, all of your trust. And it is not upon the shoulders of your parents, the government, or your bank account. It is upon the shoulders of the one who bore our sins on the cross. And that is the trustworthy statement that God saves. Does your God save? Mine does. Mine does. You want to do a rain dance? Your God might bring the rain. No, my God made the rain. God saves. This faithful saying in verse 9 indicates the value that we should have as Christians in living a life devoted to serving Christ. This should, in one sense, even consume all of your identity, all of that which you are. Before you are all the husbands in here, before you are a husband, you are a servant of Jesus Christ. And because you are a servant of Jesus Christ, you will husband as a servant of Jesus Christ. For all the wives in here, before you're a wife, you are a servant of Jesus Christ. And because you are a servant of Jesus Christ, you will wife, if I can turn that into a verb, you will wife like a servant of Jesus Christ. Same for the kids for the singles, for the workers, before anything else, we are consumed and understand the value of what it means to live a God-centered life. I would actually argue that that is the faithful saying, that Christians, in summary of what's being said in verses 6 through 10, are God-centered. How do you know what's at the center of your life? How do you know that? How do you know what's at the center of your life? I think there are some diagnostic things we can ask ourselves. Things like, what upsets us? What causes us to have anxiety? What produces fear in us? All of those things reveal and bring to the surface that which we love. If you are more bothered by the way people talk about your favorite sports team... And then you go out and you hear people using Christ's name in vain. And that doesn't even cause you to, to, to flinch. What, what if you love that sports team more than Christ? We have to check our hearts and understand that the value is seen in our labor. When we live a God-centered life. Notice secondly... Those who labor for the gospel not only understand its value, but in the beginning of verse 10, we understand the intensity that is demanded from us. Verse 10 says, For it is for this reason we labor and strive. Paul uses these two words, labor and strive, to depict and create the imagery of hard work. These are some of Paul's favorite terms in describing the nature of Christian living. Not just Christian ministry. It's interesting because Paul here says, it's not for why I labor and why I strive. He says, this is why we labor and we strive. While some people would consider that Paul is talking about him and Timothy, I would like to argue and think that Paul is talking about all of Christianity. He's even including the church in Ephesus. He's saying, why do we go through all the troubles of meeting on Sunday, coming early, disinfecting everything, printing, folding bulletins, praying for one another, texting one another, meeting up, preparing food so that we can have fellowship? Why do we go through all of those things as a local body? He's saying this is a collective effort that the entire church must feel, not just the church's leaders. 
The term here, labor, refers to the simple concept of working the fields. Copious labor, hard work, struggle, toil, hardship. He actually uses this term to describe a farmer in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. We have people here who grew up on farms, waking up at 4 in the morning, 5 in the morning, just to get in line for Costco. No. 4 in the morning, 5 in the morning, to work the fields. And how tired you are, how your body aches, and how demanding it is, not just to work outside, but to just stand underneath the sun. You ever have that feeling where you get tired because you're just sitting underneath the sun? Here the language is labor, toil, struggle. In a spiritual sense, the term is also used in 1 Timothy chapter 5.17 to describe the hard-working elder. Pastors, leaders of the church, set the tone. We ought to set the example of hard work. In Paul's letter, he might even use it to refer to the general rigor of Christian living. In Romans 16, verse 6, he does that. Also in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 25, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, he says, Listen, all Christians labor for the Lord. In the rest of the New Testament, the term is used to describe manual labor, things like catching fish. Jesus says that he was laboring, he was weary, he was tired, and so he needed to rest at the well where he met the Samaritan woman. But spiritually, it describes those who might be weary from working the law or trying to obey the law. But here in this context, it's a spiritual weariness for a good reason. For a good reason. Paul's use of labor indicates a high level of intensity required for those who serve the Lord. You know, there are some hard-working people in the world today. Like, you think about all the professional athletes, those guys work hard. You think of all the government officials, they don't have a break during what's happening right now. Those guys are working hard. You, You think of all the people in the medical field, We got nurses here. Those people are working hard. You think of even the idea of businesses motivated by money and how hard businesses will work to get their product out there. You know, I am amazed. I am amazed that you can go almost anywhere in the world and have access to Coke, not cocaine. Coca-Cola. You ever think about that? Like, you go to the Philippines, and you could be in the middle of nowhere, and they'll give you soda in a plastic bag. You can go to continents or unreached places, people who have never heard the gospel, and people will be kicking around empty soda cans. And these people are motivated by money and they will labor so that every person on earth would know and understand what it means to take a sip of that black gold, Coca-Cola. And we cannot as Christians, we have to remember that what we labor for is far more valuable than a drink. It offers far more satisfaction than soda. And that is the kind of labor that Paul is saying that he demands from all of Christianity. Notice the the terms don't stop with labor. It continues with the term strive. Similarly, this term strive points to the constant daily grind of Christian service. It refers to the idea of struggle. It's actually where we get our word agony. Agony, it sounds weird to say, but the Christian life is a life of agony, not in the sense of torture. But it is, it is the sense of, of striving and working hard for something of benefit. Paul uses it in Philippians chapter 1 to describe his striving for the gospel in the midst of opposition. 
It described the hardship of Christian ministry in other passages. And we don't know what causes this hardship. Sometimes it's external forces that makes laboring for the gospel hard. Sometimes it's our own sinful and fallen flesh that cause us to agonize to be faithful. But the idea is that it is indeed demanding. Is this how you view the Christian life? Is this how you view your contributions to the local body or your walk with the Lord? Where where is the striving in your life? Where is the labor being poured out? How are these things seen Specifically, and how are you tying them to your love for God? We can labor for a paycheck, and that might even be part of laboring for the gospel. But we have to check the priority of what's driving us. And here it is our faithfulness to the Lord that causes us to have this high level of intensity. I love now getting to the point in life where me and Mariel have been married coming up on nine years and we love watching now other people, not that we're not in love we now like to watch other people fall in love we just like to watch it you know people, we had a few weddings last year and it's crazy how people who are in love will do anything for their significant other and they like dress it up in like such poetic language I'll cross an ocean for you I'll get on a plane and I'll even sit next to someone if they had the virus for you. Right? If I get quarantined, will your hand and my hand touch the glass? Right? There are, there are people that the intensity of their love drives them to labor and work hard and make immeasurable sacrifices. And that's what should be seen in the life of the Christian when they think of their love for God and their labor for God. That there are no obstacles that the world brings or introduces into our lives that keep us from laboring and striving to be faithful to Him. The two terms are actually also closely fixed together in Colossians 1, 24-29, where many people have considered that a parallel passage to this one. And I only bring that up to show that Paul, in different contexts and to different churches, always will argue the same sentiment, and it's not a localized thing to Ephesus, but this is something that is to be found among Christians throughout all generations and all time. God desires faithful servants to maintain a level of intensity in serving the Lord. It is not reckless and it is not undisciplined. It is measured, it is well thought out, and it is a life of intense labor. Notice thirdly, there is a cause to this labor expressed there in the middle of verse 10. He says, for it is for this reason that we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God. Paul speaks of the certainty of hope. He uses the term hope here, not in the sense of how we are using it in reference to this virus or in reference to the weather, that I hope it doesn't rain. Or I hope that I don't get sick. Those are languages of hope that revolve around probability. The Christian language of hope does not revolve around probability, but it revolves and is grounded upon certainty. We have a fixed hope. And because we have this fixed hope, we can dig our heels deep into faithfully serving the Lord because we know that He is indeed true, that He is indeed faithful, that He does indeed recognize the deeds of His saints here on earth earth you know it's it is 10 times more difficult to try and undo a bad habit than try to start 
it the right way from the beginning. Have you ever had to do that before? Where you learn to do something a particular way, but you learn to do it the wrong way? And then over time, you've just done it so many ways, or you've done it so many times that way, that when somebody shows you the right way, you're like, oh man, I don't know if it's worth going back and relearning this. But you really should, because going back and relearning it will ultimately make your life in one sense easier. That is what Paul is referring to here, is that there is something that we as Christians have done right from the beginning. From the beginning of our conversion, we have understood that God is the only place that we can go to for salvation. If He is the place we go to for our biggest problem, salvation, eternal life, He is the place that we go to for all the lesser problems. And so we have fixed our hope in the past, and that fixed hope in the past has an ongoing implication for how we tackle life and all of its complexities in the here and now. We serve God faithfully because we have fixed our hope, not just in any particular object, but Paul wants to point out that the Christian's hope is fixed upon the living God. You think God is quarantined right now? You think God is wearing a mask? Do you think God is living in fear and does not want to travel or make his presence known all around the world in fear of catching this disease? No! He is not. He is an eternal being, completely other from the world. And here, this idea, actually, I believe the living God, is one of the core, non-negotiable principles and attributes of the God of Scripture. If our God is not living, he is nothing else. Our God lives. And the implications of the fact that we serve a living God, guess what? If our God lives only because somebody else gave him life, he's not God anymore. And because our God has eternal life in Him, all of His attributes, all of His kindness, all of His perfections pour out of the reality that He lives. The New Testament theme of the living God is extremely prevalent in the preaching of the gospel. Acts chapter 14, verse 15, the the reality that God is living is a foundational truth in gospel ministry. The living God is also a truth that should strike fear into humanity because he is a righteous judge. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, tells us that God will judge people. Why? Because he is a living God. Let me say that again. God has the right to judge every single individual because he is a living God. He grants life eternal, whether in heaven or in hell. And he judges. As believers, we have been redeemed from our sins and Constantly in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, tells us that we have turned from sin to a living God. Now that we serve this living God, we are part of his household. And that's why Jesus Christ tells us in Matthew 16, verse 16, that the church is built upon the name of Christ, who is the living God. Upon this rock, I will build my church. What is that rock? It is that Jesus is the Son of the living God. That reality is seen again in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, where we find out that the church is the household of the living God. Whether it is in gospel proclamation, whether it is in the judgment of the wicked, whether it is in the household of God, the idea and theme that God is alive is an absolute necessity. Turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 26 says, 
For just as the Father has life, notice where is that life? Just as the Father has life where? In Himself. He does not depend on anyone else. He is absolutely independent. The life is in Himself. Even so, He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. So, now we have a Trinitarian, or at least the Father and the Son here. Broader theology would tell us the Trinitarian Godhead possesses life. But what does the Son do with the life that is in Himself? Backtrack to verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who, what? Hear the voice of God. They will live. God the Father possesses life. God the Son possesses life. God the Spirit possesses life. And that life is poured out upon those who hear the Word of God. And the hearing here is not in reference to the biological sense of your ears hearing, but it is to the spiritual sense of understanding the message of the gospel and that life is only found in him. Why do we as Christians commit a life described as labor and striving, as difficulty and agonizing pain for the gospel? Because it is there where we find life and hope. We labor for the gospel because that is the only place where true life can be found. By the way, for purposes of broader implications, I want to argue that a gospel-centered life is a life where we get the most out of our existence. Some people feel trapped because of what the government is doing. Man, I feel trapped. I can't go outside. I can't go to crowded areas. I can't go to places. I can't travel or I can't see the world. And some people feel like their life is being robbed from them simply because they can't see or have experiences of the natural world. But let me remind you that Jesus Christ did not even leave a radius of 500 miles from where he was born, and nobody experienced life more fully than him. And you struggle with feeling trapped because you have financial binds, maybe, that keep you at home or keep you from not going out. You struggle with feeling trapped because, oh, I got kids and I can't take my kids out. Or you're struggling with loneliness because, you know, you think that something in your life is holding you back. Beloved, no, that is a twisted observation of what life in Christ actually means. That satisfaction is found in Him and Him alone that you do not even need to step outside of the one Bible radius in your life to experience the fullness of life. Do not buy into the lies of the world that God is not enough. We labor and strive because we have fixed our hope upon Him. Notice lastly, gospel labor is not only something we commit ourselves to because it's valuable. It's not something we do with a high level of intensity. It's not just something we do because we have cause for it, but it is something we do because there is motivation behind the person. The text ends by saying that there is hope in the living God, and this God is the Savior of all kinds of men, especially of believers. I don't want to present this as a problem passage. A lot of people debate about this. I simply want to just say that what Paul is saying here, I believe, is that God offers salvation to all kinds of men. Red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in His sight. This is a topic that we looked at in 
a little bit more detail when we studied 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, where we are told that God desires all men to be saved. I believe that the way that it should be understood is that God is not necessarily saying that every human in existence will be saved. I think that God is saying that there will be representatives from every tribe, tongue, and nation when we get to heaven. Actually, take a look with me in Ephesians chapter 3, I believe. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4. Or no, chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all what? Generations. So when we get to heaven, there will not only be people from different tribe, tongues, and nations, but there will be people from different generations. After a thousand years in heaven, after we've all learned Greek and Hebrew, after we've all sat and listened to Paul and had coffee with Jesus, played basketball with the saints, ate food and feasted, we will still be meeting saints from different generations. And we will still be hearing the same message that Christ saved me, because I place my faith in him. We will not only learn how Christians are saved all around the world in our lifetime. But heaven is a place that is not bound by time or location. God will save from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and generation. And I think that's what Paul is saying here when he says that God is the Savior of all men. Not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, but every human being that has ever walked upon the surface of this earth. God has a heart for all kinds of men. All kinds of humanity. But that saving work of God is done especially and extended towards those who believe. God might have a heart for Filipinos just as much as he has a heart for El Salvador. But even within those two groups, God will call out his elect to come to him. This is the God that we have fixed our hope upon the living God who saves. Why do you labor or what do you labor for? You labor for a paycheck? Do you labor for an easier life? Are you laboring to secure earthly treasures when God never intended us for us to spend eternity here on this earth per se? A life that is devoted to gospel labor, beloved, is not a wasted life. It is a life that understands where true value lies. It is a life that understands where our energies or our intensity is worth putting. It is a life of cause, of great purpose, of great meaning. And it is a life motivated by the greatest being that has ever been in existence. On July 12, 1739, at the age of 21, God saved a man by the name of David. David Brainerd. He would eventually enroll and study at Yale in preparation for ministry. He was at the top of his class, but despite that, with some administrative issues and issues he had with some professors, actually calling out some of the professors who he believed to be unbelieving, he got expelled from divinity school there in Yale. Even though he was discouraged, and after several attempts to go back to school uh, that didn't work out, he turned his focus and his attention 
to the local Indians as a mission field. He devoted his life, and it was filled with constant up and downs. He was constantly sick, oftentimes describing how riding his horse, he would get off of his horse and begin to vomit blood. It was a life of constant loneliness as he would battle, feeling alone and feeling all by himself. He actually even struggled in several of his his journal entries with the idea of depression. There were times where he even struggled to love the very people that he ministered to. We might think that a man like David Brainerd spent decades ministering to the Indians, but actually... He died just eight years after his conversion, after serving his local congregation for only four years. And you know what he died of? He died of tuberculosis. He died of tuberculosis. And just a few months before he passed, listen to what he wrote in his journal. This is what he said. Oh, how I longed to fill the remaining moments of my life all for God. Though my body is feeble and wearied with preaching and much private conversation, yet I wanted to sit up all night to do something for God. To God, the giver of these encouragements in my life, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Christian for eight years, pastor for four, died at the age of 29. Is that a wasted life? Is that a wasted life? I think that's a life that values the gospel, that labors intensely for eternal matters, that understands why he's here and loves the God of Scripture. May we do the same. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for the simple truths of the gospel. How these truths of the gospel can turn sinners and turn them into saints. And how they can cause us to do extraordinary things for eternal purposes. Lord, the world might be amazed at what athletes can accomplish in their career or how much money businessmen can acquire over a lifetime or how much politicians can accomplish in their terms of office. But may we as Christians know and understand that even if we as Christians achieve those accomplishments, they will only be as valuable as they are done for the sake of Christ and the work of the gospel. Give us that eternal perspective, Lord. Cause us to be faithful servants, faithful laborers for the message of the gospel. Lord, we ask and pray for your grace and mercy, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.